0: Hello, everybody. John here. There's an organization I got involved with in downtown Denver. It's called Colorado Uplift. It was founded by a Dr. Kent Hutchison, who had this vision that that our urban youth and these these underserved youth that uh, had really been left behind, they were in hopeless circumstances that, you know what, that they were worth saving. And let's just, that was in 1982. Let's fast forward to today. Hundreds of thousands of kids in the Denver public school system have been brought, um, I I mean, the average graduation rate in some of these schools for Latinos was 48%, African Americans 44%. I I, I mean, it's heartbreaking, but when people could get into the Uplift program that he founded that was in the public school systems, the graduation went, rate went to 98 to 99%. And their mission is to build long-term life-changing relationships with urban youth. And the current president of Colorado Uplift, uh, he was a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, he has his doctoral degree, Joe Sanders, an amazing human being. And Brian Stommer from Colorado Uplift, uh, they started a podcast. Um, it, it, and they invited me on, and we were able to really share... I think the role of mentorship, what it meant in my life, uh, some of the highs and lows that I've been through, and really how that mentorship, when I had it and when I didn't, how it got me through that. So I really wanted to share this conversation I had on their podcast. I'd love to have you guys plug in to the Leading on Purpose podcast. I really think you guys would absolutely love it. If you like Eternal Leadership podcast, I'd love to give you a recommendation to the Leading on Purpose
1: podcast. Enjoy this conversation with me and Joe and Brian. Joe and I just got done interviewing John Ramstead. Wow, what a story. You're going to hear a story today about John engaging and going into the Navy as a fighter pilot, some challenges that he encountered there, going into corporate America with incredible success, and then a life-altering event where his life was dramatically changed. And through that, he was inspired to do something different to take on a calling of investing in people and bringing out the best in them. Similar to what we do at Uplift, we invest in kids. John has taken on that calling of investing in CEOs, executives, leaders, and has had tremendous success over the last couple of years through some of the challenges he's encountered. Welcome to Leading on Purpose, a podcast by Colorado Uplift, where we enlighten, energize, and equip leaders to make a difference in their communities. I'm Brian Stammer, Uplift's Chief Operating Officer, and today we're sitting down with John Ramstead. John's a leadership coach, but he's also, it's a little intimidating for us today. John's a podcast host of a very successful podcast called Eternal Leadership, and we're getting the opportunity to sit down with him today. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Joe Sanders, Uplift's CEO.
2: Thanks, Brian. Uh, Thanks for joining us, John. Appreciate having you here. Oh, man, my pleasure. Love being here with you guys. Yeah, you know, and uh, Brian mentioned this, uh, you know podcast host for eternal leadership, but it's probably a little different for you being on that side of the, the table, um, for sure. But uh, we appreciate you being willing to do that for the sake of this podcast.
0: Well, I love it. You know, what I love about podcasts. It's just, you know, people hanging out and having just great conversations. You get to share it with the world. And hopefully there's just one person out there that this might be a conversation that makes a difference for that. One person, so that's always my perspective.
2: Awesome. Well, we appreciate you being willing to do that with us here today. Uh, So I just want to jump right in, Uh, John. um, You know, you're doing some amazing things um, now, and uh, we're going to talk some about that. Um, But amongst uh, amazing things you've actually done throughout your life, uh, one of the things is you were uh, a fighter pilot in, in the Navy. Yes, I was. Uh, and I know we had an agreement beforehand. We're not going to make any uh, Air Force, Navy jokes, you know, with me being from the Air Force. I think or think it was then. more of a guideline than an Is that agreement. Okay, yeah. all right, all right. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stay within those those guidelines because that's what this, us Air Force folks do. Um, but with that said, could you, you know, tell us a bit about your experience in the military as a, a Navy fighter pilot.
0: It was incredible. It was interesting. I, you know, I grew up with a, a fear of heights, like a terrible fear of heights. And I was looking at uh, college and my grandpa think about this. Uh my grandpa immigrated here from Norway in nineteen ten. And then he enlisted to fight for the army in World War One and was back in all the battles as an ammo runner. Those are like the flamethrower, you know, the guys that always were the targets back then. And that just always so struck me how much he loved this country and the opportunities that were here, that he would go fight for this country after only being here a couple of years. Mm. And my dad enlisted in the Navy uh the day he turned seventeen to go fight in World War II in the Pacific and became a uh, radio man and a tail gunner. So even though I read everything about the Battle of Britain and I just knew I wanted to go in the Navy Mm. as a pilot, never even considered the Air Force, really because of my dad. Mm. I'll never forget, though, the day that uh, when when the movie Top Gun came out, right? I just kind of – when I was younger, I had this low self-image. I was very introverted, very – I just was not the popular kid. I was the last guy picked for every sports team. How's that? Hmm. And the movie comes out, and I'm in uh, going into my junior year in college on a Navy ROTC scholarship, and I'm watching Tom Cruise up on the silver screen, uh-huh. and I think I walked out of that theater with a completely different feeling than everybody else. What I saw on that screen, which had been my dream since I was a kid, was the realization in my mind that I could never do that. Hmm. And I gave up on the spot. I didn't even apply for aviation. I actually applied for submarines. Wow. And so uh, while I was still in college, I actually spent six weeks on a submarine. I realized, oh, my God, I can't do this. I I mean, I I would be able to succeed professionally. I knew I could do the job, but I wouldn't enjoy the job. That makes sense. That makes sense, yeah. I'm like, oh, so what do you do? When you have this choice, you're at this why in the road. I could succeed but not enjoy it. But in the other direction – The chance of failure is huge. They told us, I don't even know if this is true, but when we got back, because of the movie, only one in every 10,000 people applying right now are going to end up even flying a fighter. Wow. Wow. Right? So here's what I decided, though. At that moment, I was talking with my dad. He gave me some great encouragement, but I made a choice to bet on myself. And I applied to flight school, and I knew applying to flight school meant I could not go to submarines. And I ended up getting in. And uh, I was heading down to Pensacola. And as I'm getting closer and closer to Pensacola, right, I got this big dream. I can do this. And all this stuff starts flooding in these limiting beliefs, things I, I believed about myself to be true, which really weren't things that people had said to me. And I was starting like freaking out as I'm getting closer to Pensacola. And I remember something my dad said. And it was the best advice I've ever had in my life. I followed it to this day. And he said, John, when you get down there, there's going to be a student who's crushing it, who everybody's talking about, the ace of the base. Mm. And you need to go find him. Mm. He's going to be probably just like Joe Sanders. He didn't even know (laughs) yet. Um, But go buy him a beer and just ask him what he's doing. Mm. And I did that. His name was John Foster. Mm. And I said, what are you doing? He goes, well, here's what I believe. It's not the best pilots that graduate, number one, it's the best students. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, well, do you know how to juggle? I'm like, "Uh, I don't. He goes, good, you're going to learn. He made me write down everything we had to know in the cockpit, every procedure, emergency, anything on three by five cards. while I juggling, he would quiz me because he goes, "You have to learn how to recall information, make decisions while doing something physically." Well anyway, I followed his and here's the interesting thing that was curious to me. Everybody in my class said they wanted to be number one. Hmm. And when I shared with people what I was doing, working with this guy, John, I was letting him mentor me, why I was getting such good grades. I'd risen to the top of my class. I invited them to join John and I for a time instead of going to the beach, instead of going to the O Club for beers. Uh You know, He would do some of that, but he had to get everything else done first, and none of them joined us. Hmm. So I, I thought that was really curious as an observation. A lot of people say they have big goals, but they don't want to put in the work. I know you played basketball at a very high level. You put in work that other people didn't, didn't you? That's right. Um,
1: while juggling, actually.
0: While <laughs> juggling. Yes. That would be impressive. Did you, did you do the, uh, the basketball, the bowling pin, and the chainsaw? I did not. Yeah, okay. I did not. Um, Too dangerous. So anyway, through that, I ended up graduating number one. Hmm. Um, not only in my class, but in the country. But what that showed me was when you really uh, get focused on a goal – You bring other people into your life to help mentor you, and you actually start believing some of the good things that people say about you, because for some of us, that's hard. You start putting that together. It's amazing what can actually unfold in your life. And because I graduated number one, I put down number one on my selection sheet to fly the F-14 Tomcat, and I got orders to go fly the F-14 out of Oceania, went through training, and and as soon as I got done, got deployed to Japan, and we went straight to the Persian Gulf for Desert Storm. So when I was, I think, 23 years old, wow, uh, that was a long time ago, uh, I was flying combat missions over Iraq, wow. you know, in the first Desert Storm. Wow. In- wow. It was I- incredible experience.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, what was that like? I mean, most people can't you know, imagine that. I mean, it's hard to just kind of just put your mind around that, but is there something you could share with us just to help us capture what that would be like? It was a little embarrassing, but... Some of those limiting beliefs, those thoughts right there, we're always
0: trying to overcome them, right? Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the first time walking down the passageway. I step out through a big hatch onto this grate. The ocean's crashing 60 feet below me. I turn to the right and climb up, put my foot on the flight deck, and this hot wind just blasts me in the face. It's 7 in the morning. It's already like 113 degrees, and I had this knot in my stomach already. And the air was just thick with like the smell of jet exhaust and hydraulic fluid. And I looked over at my Tomcat, and it was loaded for the first time in my life. And this is your what, plane, right? Your isn't Tomcat? My, my f four? Yeah, that I'm going to yeah. go take off the deck. Uh-huh. It was loaded with live bombs and missiles mm. because this was my, fir- my morning. This is my first flight in the combat. And I knew that the decisions I made that day, my wingman's life, was going to depend on it. Mm. And uh, the decisions my wingman's— my wingman makes. My life depends on that. And Joe, we were tasked to do close air support for troops on the ground. So the first time this was going to be like, could be for real. And every decision you make in that environment is life or death consequences for somebody. Mm. And so like, all this is going through my head. So I just, the only thing I can do is start going through my checklist and I get in the cockpit and I'm just trying to push that knot in my gut down and the engines just start roaring to life, and I'm just alone for a minute, and I just start doubting myself. Hmm. Then they start taxing you forward, and you get up to the catapult shot and uh, to the catapult, and they lock you in, and you go to full power, and they're running around doing all the final checks. And then the uh, flight tech officer gives you a signal, which means to go to full afterburner. And when you go to full afterburner, you're burning 2,000 pounds of fuel per minute that airplane's rattling and shaking, and the last thing you have to do before you launch is you salute the flight tech officer to let him know that you are good to go, everything's in the green. Mm. And right before I was supposed to raise my arm to salute him, I literally couldn't raise my arm. And I'm thinking in my head, don't launch, man. I am not ready for this. Now, evidently, I saluted and boom, I get fired. <laughs> zero to one hundred fifty mile an hour, two point four seconds, and I'm oh. climbing my way up into Iraq. And I'm going, "What the heck?" Wow! But I look back on that moment, and I just think about, you know, some of these incredible people in my life. My dad, mm. you know, John Foster, uh, my wife now of thirty years. She mm-hmm. was part of this. My mm-hmm. commanding officer at the time, his call sign was Darth for Darth Vader. Okay. And yes, if you pictured Darth Vader in a navy uniform, that was him. <laughs> you did not want to be on his bad side, but he was an amazing mentor to me. As a matter of fact, we're we're still in touch now, thirty years later. Oh, that's awesome. But you know, it's those people in your life. You know, you, you get into situations, whether it's a career decision, a relationship decision. You know, you've made a huge mistake and maybe you have to walk through stuff. Mm. And there's those people we have in our lives, I've come to realize, that are so important that maybe, you know, they helped us accomplish things that maybe we didn't think were possible. Mm. Or they helped us, you know, move through times of, like, significant adversity. I've absolutely had times like that. Yeah. You know, or they just believe in you until you believe in yourself Mm. a little bit more. Yeah, And it's through the influence, honestly, of others I am so grateful today. I truly believe that is a huge... Reason why I've been able to do some of the things that I've done and get through, you know, to get to some of the peaks, but also move through some of the significant valleys I've also had. Yeah. But I think that was one of the biggest things. And, and just flying a fighter, you know, flying low levels at 100 feet. Pulling six, seven G's. I got to fly the F-16, pulled nine G's. That just hurts.
2: That just, <laughs> just be. No other way to say it. Yeah, huh? there's just, I don't care what
0: some other F-16 guy tells you. That's just painful. I'm like, yeah, let's go fly. Let's We're going to just bend this thing around. I'm like, yeah, that's going to hurt.
2: <laughs> uh. Well you mentioned um moving through valleys. Um you know can you talk to us a little bit about um your, your transition out of the military? Uh you know, and before going there, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, the movie Top Gun as yeah. well. Uh you know, you got selected for Top Gun, right? And I then did. you had a point after that where there was a transition um, and maybe a little bit of a valley. Can you kinda of share a little bit um with us on what happened there? Yeah, so have
0: you been on a navy ship? I have. Okay, so I walk out of my commanding officer's stateroom, and I have a permagrant on my face. Man, I am I am floating down the passageway. I had just been told I was the one going to
2: Top Gun. Yeah. I literally couldn't even sleep that night. And, and just for the audience, can you— Maybe say a little bit about what that means. I mean, Top it's a big deal. I mean, first of all, you like so you graduated the top. You know, we talked about Pensacola, yep. top of your class there, but can you talk a little bit about what Top Gun actually means so our audience can have a sense of that?
0: Yeah, what it is is they pick. Uh, there's a couple qualities that they're looking for. First of all, you have to be extraordinary at your ability to to fly and fight the F-14. But what happens? Top Gun is really a train the trainer program. They're bringing one person from an air wing in for an ex, an intensive to make them an expert, and then your job—you come back from Top Gun into that into the air wing as the pilot training officer. So then your job is to teach everybody else what you learned. That's kind of the whole model. It's mm-hmm. all about replication. Yeah. But they can't bring you know an entire air wing, and they they just don't have the resources to train everybody. So one person per year. One crew, front seat, you know, pilot and our back seater, we call them a radar intercept officer a Rio, gets elected and that's it. Yeah. And it's a, it's a huge deal. I mean, yes. honestly, this has been my goal for five years since mm-hmm. the day I got my commission until I got told I'm going to Top Gun, celebrate that night. Next weekend, I'm playing softball with our squadron team and I hear someone yell, watch out! And I turn to my right and a line drive drills me in the right eye and blows out the back of my eye socket. Mm -hmm. And I have nerve damage, and I have double vision, and it doesn't get any better, and I lose my medical, and this is now in the mid-90s, and they're drawing down the military. And so within a year of that softball hitting me in the eye,
2: I got processed out. Wow. So you went from being selected for Top Gun to being... Discharge from the military,
0: and I even went there because they didn't know where to put me. So I actually taught some classes. So I was that was almost even harder. I was in the environment. Mm. I was there with the guys, and they're all suiting up to go fly their missions and do their this cool stuff. And I'm like, hey, yeah, see you later. I'll Mm. keep the coffee warm. So I was like doing that was like that was that was penance. I don't. I must. I don't know what I did to deserve that. But, uh, but anyway, now think about this. I get out uh-huh. here. I am, I'm a pilot who can't fly. I have a degree in electrical engineering, and I don't know how to engineer anything. And I couldn't find a job anywhere. Mm. So my first job that I got was selling cell phones. And I was going door to door, knocking on, knocking, hoping somebody was home so I could sell them a cell phone. And the sounds of my dreams are roaring over my head. Mm. Flying by, and I'm looking up at the F-14s and F-18s going, I should be up there. Mm. That should be me. Mm. And I think I had never sunk so low. I mean, my dream had been ripped away. That was my, also my identity. Mm. Right? I didn't really understand this whole concept of identity. But I will tell you that at that point, my identity came completely from external sources and validation. My uniform, what I did, what I'd been recognized for, awards that were on my chest, that was who – I thought I was, Mm. right? And how I showed up in the world. Mm -hmm. And that had all just been ripped away. Yeah. And so no dreams, no goals, no vision, didn't know who I was, what I wanted to do. And I don't think I've ever been probably lower. I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but I was close at that point. Mm. And it was through that period of time, this was amazing as I, so I started just going to some networking groups mostly to see if I could sell more cell phones. And I met a gentleman that was at one of these groups who was, uh, he was a school teacher. Okay. And He just started mentoring me. Let's just get together for coffee. And he introduced me to a friend of his who's an attorney. And, and then Jeff and John and I started getting together for coffee. And then they introduced me to another friend of them because this is the guy that kind of had started this chain of mentoring who was an orthodontist, Clark. And these three guys just started meeting with me and – Asked me like what I like to do and sowing positive things in me and help me reframe how I seen the world. And and it's also these three guys who were, at this time, Joe, I would have never, ever stepped in. I was raised in going in church, going to church. I was mad at God. I was mad at everybody. I would have never gone to a church. Mm. But I got to tell you, also through this, it was these three gentlemen that led both me and my wife to our faith. Mm. And do you know that to this day, what, 25 plus years later, we are still... Still in touch with those men and their wives. And my wife and I actually just went back to San Diego a couple months ago to just have a whole celebration about the influence that they have had, I believe, generationally. Because mm. I'm a different father, mm. I'm a different husband mm. than I've ever been I've had not those three men and actually their and their wives sewed into my wife Donna mm. and taken time out of their lives to just make us important. For one reason, because they just felt a need to serve us. And I got to tell you, that that was a transformative moment in my life. That got me back on track, and it was through that that I decided to move back from San Diego to Minnesota to uh, start a company with a friend of mine. I would have never made that. I don't know where I'd be today or where I would have ended up. I mean, I would have – we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I would have gotten through it, but I don't think I would have ever gotten through that level of internal adversity, life adversity, as well as I did or land on my feet the way I did without, you know, these people that just took the time to focus on somebody that they thought that they could help Wow. versus saying, you know what, I'm busy and I got a meeting. Hmm. Hey, good to meet you. Here's my card. That's that's what most people do, right? That's yeah. not what these guys did. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. The counsel I got from those guys is, you know what? I don't know if it's the best idea for you right now to go back and start a company with an old high school friend. Right? Mm. And I'm like, nah, I think you're wrong. So I go back. I'm going to be an entrepreneur. We're going to make a ton of money. This mm. is the late 90s. Things are booming. Mm. I was not. I was still, though, not in a good place. I'm still – you know, it takes a while sometimes to – this isn't like flipping a switch. Right, right. Right? And so my first attempt at being an entrepreneur was an abject failure. We drove that company into the ground. And also in the process, I managed to destroy that friendship with mm. one of my close friends. Mm. And, you know, a lot – and at the time, it was interesting because I blamed him for everything mm. and vice versa. Mm. Right? It sounds like a marriage gone wrong. <laughs> uh So, but you know what? Then I actually, it was interesting because then right after that, you know, you know, everybody listening, you know, I'm just here to give you hope. uh, As you hear this, right? (laughs) I I did eventually kind of figure some of these things out. Because here's what happened next: another guy who I'd met saw Mm -hmm. something in me I didn't see in myself. Uh Startup data mining software company. He says, "I want you to come in and be my head of operations and sales." I'm like, "Uh, "Okay." I feel like I totally outkicked my coverage. I was intimidated. I was coming out of the military. Mm. This thing with with my friend had not worked out. Mm. We're in meetings with CEOs and business owners, and uh-huh. I'm literally starting to stutter and stammer. And I'll ne- I'll never forget once. I was in a meeting with uh, one of the biggest companies at the time. They're on the cover of all the magazines. They'd be almost kind of like the Amazon of today. It's called Digital River Okay, uh, was the name of the company. And... We got a meeting with their CEO and their founding chief technology officer. And anyway, I mean, they're like on the cover of Inc. Mm. and Entrepreneur and Fast Company. And the night before the meeting, Tim looks at me and goes, hey, it's your meeting. You got this. <laughs> now, what he just did was throw me in the deep end, and I didn't know how to swim. Uh. There was no mentorship. There was no like, here's how we're going to run the meeting. Let me Let me help you put this together. He's like, no. So he just wanted to see how I did. Hmm. I put together the whole pitch deck and everything. I'll never forget the next morning I threw up. On the way there, Mm. I was so nervous, Mm. and then I get in the meeting. I'll never, I can, I'll never forget this wood paneled room with the window just like there. It was, you know, the fall of the year, and here's these two guys sitting across from me that are on, you know, on all the magazines, and I start to talk. Tim just, you know, introduced ourselves, and he hands it to me to start, and I start. I have this dry mouth, so I'm, yeah, you know, so. And I feel myself kind of erp in the back of my throat. Mm. The only thing I have in front of me is hot coffee. So I take a – I pound some of that down, which made it worse. Oh, yeah. So now (laughs) I start, like, stuttering Mm. and talking and making no sense. And literally Tim reaches over with his hand and takes my little pitch book and closes it and takes over the meeting.
1: Mm.
2: Wow.
0: I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> what am I going to tell my wife? i got to go get in our <laughs> job. So my whole rest of the meeting, I'm just checked out. I just want to be done, get out of there and go home. Mm-hmm. And we're walking back to the car. Tim doesn't say a word. Mm-hmm. We're sitting in the car, and he goes, what happened in there? I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know what I said. Uh, and I'm just looking out the window. I couldn't even make eye contact. And he goes, here's what happened. He goes, you know what? You were so concerned about looking good and talking about you Mm -hmm. and what you did in the Navy and what our company does. I didn't hear anything that you said that was about them or how we could help them Mm -hmm. or what problems they have or how we could even add value or should we even be here? Because it's all about them. And if we can't add value to them in their world, we're not going to partner. Because if there is value, business is just going to happen naturally. He goes – and then he said something that changed my life. He said, John, next time, I know you're going to knock it out of the park. Hmm. And my head snapped around. I'm like, "Uh, what what did you just say? (laughs) He goes, John, I think I just spent a million dollars on your training. So there's no way I'm letting you go now. Oh, wow. And we never got that deal. (laughs) And I got to tell you, that one gentleman, that guy at that time, uh, believing in me in that way – changed everything. So then I was all in, 80, 90 hours a week. We took that company from an idea to a million dollars a month in sales. Wow. On paper, I was worth $17 million. I had my golden parachute. My wife and I were planning for our future. Wow. And then the internet bubble popped. Mm. And 90 days later, we closed the doors. And I was out on the street again. (laughs) Okay, so Joe. It was not
2: smooth sailing after? No, so okay,
0: <laughs> told you. I'm here to give you hope. Um, so it, just a lot that, I, but it was at this point, right? I'm like, okay, what the heck? What's going on? And you know, and um, this is really the foundation of the book that I just wrote. That's going to be coming out soon, right? Was yeah. what I learned really through this whole process, the good and the bad was really kind of these three key things that I really started to get some awareness on. And the first one was I needed to have a worthwhile goal and dream. I had to have something I was moving toward because every time I was ever in just kind of like uh, in a treadmill or stuck in a landing pattern, right, it's just not a healthy place mentally. Mm -hmm. Those times in my life where I really felt like I was engaged and and alive and happy uh, was when I was pursuing something. My wife... In college, it took me three months just to get her to date me, right? Uh, you know, flight school, you know, all these different things. The second thing is I had to really figure out who I truly was, not who I thought I should be, who not, the, not who the world told me I should be. I had to really connect my identity. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is our identity, I think, is formed primarily from three areas, and it's our own personal experience, right? Things that people have said to us directly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, maybe I'm working with you, and you just make a comment that you meant to be encouraging, but just my filters, I took it as maybe validating a flaw that I see in myself. Mm. Right? But we, we, you know, all this stuff is coming in, and also, especially with the the younger people today, I, I see it very prevalently. Especially my, I got three boys, is what we think other people think about us.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Maybe just their body language in a meeting, something they put on social media. But all this stuff comes in and forms in, and there's some of it, there's truths, and some of it, there's lies that we accept as a truth about ourselves. And I think if we actually looked in the mirror and said, okay, the person that I see versus that best version of myself,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what is that difference? Mm -hmm. I believe the bigger the gap is between those two, the more stress and anxiety that we feel in our life. So I would just tell people if you're listening, if you're feeling that stress and anxiety, that might be a a place to start and really look. Um, And then the third thing uh, was just having a true north because guess what? If you want to set a direction, a course in your life toward that destination, and you've made some work on kind of who you are so you really kind of know where you're starting from – right? You need to have a compass.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You have to be able to figure out where to go. And if you're off course, you need a reference to be able to make a correction back. Yeah, I had no reference. I mean, I, I those guys had loved me to faith. That was a huge part of my life. But honestly, as I got in business and got busier and busier and got more accolades, I kind of went back into that mindset. I was in the military where my identity had be, had shifted to being external again, mm. right? My paycheck, the title on my business card, the boards that I was on, right? I was seeking to be on the boards that were, you know, would give status and all these kind of things versus being there. Cause I was passionate about a cause. Right. I mean, what you guys do are I'm passionate about your cause. I love to be part of your world and mm. friends and help any way I can. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, we appreciate that for sure. But anyway, so, and for me, what I had to realize was that that true North for me was really getting in touch and, you know, from a, for me, it was important from a faith perspective about, you know, my faith was that true north. But the other things were also really getting to understand my core beliefs, my core values, my skills, my talent. What are those things uh, that who, who I want to be known for? Yeah. Right. So in kind of in that mix, I kind of looked at it uh, in three areas. Right. Uh, who I thought I was. I wanted to be, Mm -hmm. and how other people experienced me.
2: Yeah,
0: and when my goal was to actually get all three of those to be the same. Yeah, still working on that. Yeah,
2: no, I can be honest (laughs) with you. I'm still working on that one,
0: right? Because there's times I am not the person I would love to be. Uh, But you know, with that awareness, and then I also had another great man. I got I got a job at a Fortune 100 company just as a sales rep. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find anything else. And uh, I'll never forget I was at a uh, and you know anybody out there especially if you're younger don't be afraid to ask people to mentor you hmm. uh, because I remember I was at our first company meeting and the executive VP for this group I don't know he's five or six layers above me this guy spoke from stage and I was I was impressed hmm. his business career was on fire but in a hardcore technology sales driven culture he talked about his marriage he talked about his kids I'm like. You know, because here's what I have realized over life. When you bring somebody in and you're allowing yourself to be mentored, mm. you're going to get the results that they got. When I first got out of the Navy, there was a very wealthy guy who was on his fourth marriage and had no relationship with his kids who wanted to mentor me and bring me into his company. Hmm. And he was shocked when I said no, because I realized that if I did that, I'd probably get the same results he did. I'd be very wealthy. And have some really cool cars. I mean, he had some pretty cool cars. Uh, but I'd probably be pretty lonely, just like he was. He mm-hmm. was looking for friends at, wow. at, at, in, at 60 years old. Um, but I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, like, you know, new guy, right? <laughs> Waiting in line to say hi. I'm like, hey, hey, Mr. Sanders, could you m- mentor me? <laughs> I think I was such a goober. Um, and he just looked uh. at me. And he's like, well, you know, you can talk to my assistant. And he turned to have another conversation. So I wrote him a personal thank-you note hmm. for just that brief conversation. It took me a month to get on his calendar for a 15-minute conversation. Hmm. I wrote him another thank-you note and made sure I worked another month to get on his calendar. But within three months of that first conversation, he and I were meeting formally every two weeks. Wow. Because I think yeah. as, when you, somebody does agree to mentor you, as a mentee, you have a responsibility to show appreciation to take action, to give them feedback on the things that they're sharing with you, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Things that they've shared with you that you're having trouble either implementing or processing or some of the changes they've suggested you to make. You need to be really upfront about it and not try to spin things, right? Right. We've all done that. Oh, yeah. Right? Because I I, I might – especially when our identity is a little off. Yeah. Right? It's sometimes really hard to say, hey, you know that thing you told me to do? I never did it because I was afraid. Mm. Right, You yeah. need to get to that place with your mentor where you know it's safe and there's a lot of trust there. That's good. And so his work with me, I took a division that when I – so then I got promoted into management and then into another kind of almost startup within this huge company. It was doing $2 million a year in revenue. And within two and a half years with with his mentorship, um, I grew that – our team that I was able to put together grew to $100 million in sales. Wow. Fifty X in two and a half years. Wow! And I attribute that to a lot of hard work, but mentorship, mm. and that's the, also the culture we also
2: created on our team. Wow! Definitely, mentorship is uh, something that's a common theme. Little theme uh, there, uh, yeah, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and so if as we look at what you're up to today, yeah, uh, you know how has um, you know those lessons you've learned, um, the importance of developing and investing in others, and this idea of transformation and clarifying identity. How has that shaped what you're up to today?
0: After the technology firm, I went to a Wall Street firm, and then uh, they moved me here to Denver, Mm -hmm. where I got to meet all you amazing people. (laughs) But I was going to start my own company, Uh and that was in 2011. So I was five months into that, and I get invited to a ranch up in Montana for a business retreat. And I was up there. I was the first one saddled to go on a ride for lunch uh, to the back of this property. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm from Minnesota, done some docile trail rides. That's what I was expecting.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, my horse had some different plans. Uh, he started trotting away from the fence, and all of a sudden he just bolted and took off. And I'm laying flat on my back, and his rump is pounding me in the shoulder blades. And I'm scared to death I'm going to flip off the back of this horse and get kicked in the head and get killed. So I did the only thing I knew to even do at the time, and that was just my reaction was to just squeeze with my legs as hard as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, What I didn't know at the time, because I'm a guy and I didn't read any manuals, was that is telling the horse to go faster. And he absolutely responded. Mm. And I finally get my weight back up on the saddle, and we're looking at this steel fence line that's about 80 yards ahead of me, and it's clear off to my left. And we're going, I've never been on a horse that was faster in a trot. So this was not comfortable. Me at all, and we're going faster and faster. But I grab the rein and I pull to get him to turn where it's clear, and he just pulls his head straight back and doesn't even break stride. Wow, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I grabbed the rein, I pull even harder, and he does, and he pulls his head back even harder, and I literally and and now we're at a flat out gallop, and I start absolutely panicking. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I should jump off this horse. If I jump on this horse, I'm going to break my neck. I don't want to break my neck. What do I do? I mean, literally, I mean, I've, I've, you know, flown in combat, been shot at, you know, raised three teenagers, Mm. nothing prepared me, like, for this moment, Mm. and I just froze. Mm. And about 20 yards in front of the fence, at a full gallop, winds in my hair, hooves are thundering. I remember, like, every, you guys ever have one of those times where just everything slows down? Mm. You just have that moment of just real clarity? Yeah. I had that. Mm. (laughs) And I said, this is not going to end well. Mm. And that's the last thing I remembered. Uh, He went into the fence and he actually bucked so hard he flipped over and slammed into the fence rump first and hurt himself. And when he did that, I went Superman straight face first into a (laughs) three-inch rolled steel beam. I broke every bone in my skull except virtually except for my jaw and my right cheekbone. Broke my neck,
2: hmm.
0: shattered my shoulder. Hmm. The second bar down hit me in the chest. I broke – I crushed the left side of my, my rib cage, broke four ribs, punctured my lung. Uh, we found out later that what happened to me was not survival, should not have been survivable. Hmm. The medic who was there did not expect me to last until even life lifelike got there, which was expected to be about an hour. I, just to put everything in context, I ended up uh, in ICU up there for five weeks. And then I was here in Denver at Craig Hospital with a severe traumatic brain injury, and I was uh, an outpatient there for 20 months. My Mm. wife was driving me down there three to five days a week for 20 months.
1: Mm.
0: So I wake up on the ground in more pain than I can even describe to anybody. And you you know that saying, God won't give you more than you can handle? I don't believe it's true anymore. (laughs) 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 <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, I was literally beyond my breaking point. Uh, but it was like all of a sudden in, that, this, in a moment, I was in God's presence. Mm. And what I felt was the most unconditional and personal love between the father and a son, me, but it was personal. Mm. And I had never, like my whole life, I kind of always thought of God as like, you know, the commanding general. Right? Mm -hmm. Like he's a good guy. He's got your back. But Mm -hmm. you don't go say, sir, I need a hug. I had a bad day. You just you don't do that. When I was in his presence, all of a sudden I felt like uh, waves at an ocean when you're at the beach and they're washing up over you. Yeah. This peace, they had a weight to it. And as it was washing over me, all that pain and panic and fear I was in was completely taken away. It was gone. Wow. And this peace almost had a color to it. I almost want to say purple, but that's not right. I Mm. I don't even know the words to use. I've tried, but I I can't get there. Mm. And then he spoke to me. It was a voice that came from everywhere and nowhere. And it wasn't to my ears at all. It was like almost like a consciousness flowing through me, like right here, Mm -hmm. right in the center. And he said, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And just where I was at the time, I had no idea that even came from the Bible. I just want (laughs) you to know, that's kind of how far I drifted, right? Um, Instead of heading toward L.A. in my life, I was circling over Antarctica somewhere. Is kind of how (laughs) I felt. Uh, And then he said, John, I'm going to heal you. And use this for my glory. Hmm. The Lord give it, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. As soon as he said that, I knew my left eye was permanently blind, which it is. Um, All the bones behind the eye socket had shattered and cut the optic nerve. And so I get to the hospital. And I wake up. I said, hey, God's here. It's going to be okay. You don't have to worry. And they're like, what? So you no, told them dude, this. <laughs> like your head's crushed in. Your neck's broken. Like you're, you can't breathe. And I'm like, no, it's all good, man. It's all good. And I was, acting, I was acting so normal when they first called my wife. They're like, yeah, John got thrown off a horse. You need to come up from Denver up to Montana so you can drive him home. I get to the hospital, and they, they assess me, and they're like, you need to get up here with the boys because it does not look good. Mm. So let me just kind of make – there, there's so much we could unpack here, but let me just kind of share one thing that leads to your question, Brian. I'll never forget, though, even though I just had that experience, I'm laying in my bed. This is a few days into it. And the neurosurgeon walks in and says, we need to take John's skull off. we got to do emergency brain surgery, which I did. I ended up having two craniotomies. And – He starts sharing with Donna, what I'm hearing is the chance of me surviving this surgery because of all these different complications was not good. Mm. I remember him telling her, I just want you to be prepared. He might not be the person you remember afterwards. But then he looks at my wife directly in the eyes and says, does John have a will and a living will? And we had just redone it. We were supposed to sign it when we got back to Denver from this trip. And she explained that to him. And he goes, you know what? We can wait till the morning. I'd really appreciate if you called, you know, if you could make that happen, Mm. which is what they did. She called my attorney, and they had it FedExed up there. And the next morning, I'm like, I I don't think it was legal. I don't know. It's a good thing I didn't die. But that's what they did. But they left the room, and I'm laying there in bed going. I was convinced, certainty, next weekend was my funeral. And I started playing the tape. Mm. And you know, at the front of the church, everybody says nice things. I mean, that's what you do. Uh, but then I started thinking about what happens, what do they say at the back of the church?
2: Mm.
0: You know, when they're rooting around for the roast beef sandwiches and potato salad. Mm. And what would they say? Let's say you guys knew me then and it was a year or two later. What would you have really said? Hey, he's a nice guy. He was a good networker. Wow, mm. oh, what a bummer. I, what was his wife's name again? I think that's what people would have said. And I got to tell you, I laid there convicted mm. and realized that I had been given this incredible second chance Mm. to live a life so that use of that life would outlive my life. Mm -hmm. Legacy. A legacy. Because that's exactly, I started thinking, if I'm dead, what gets left to my kids? That's inheritance and to my wife. And I'm thinking, you know, with everything we have and life insurance, they're, they're in a good spot. But Brian, yeah, I started thinking about legacy. What have I left in my wife? in my kids, in the world around me in a way that made it a better place, made them better people. And I got to tell you, I was convicted. Yeah. And as I recovered and I saw it like what is next, I realized that my life had been in pursuit of being kind of the king to make it to the top. Mm. And I'm not saying that's a wrong goal. I, there's no judgment there. But for me, that became my priority. Mm. And what I realized is, for me, how i am been wired, my true identity, my true north, my where I want to get to personally where that came, is I wanted to be the person that could be the kingmaker. Mm. I wanted to be the person that could step into the gap with a leader to help them connect with the best version of their self, connect to their purpose, but then have the tools to actually go out and do something with that in yeah. the world mm. and just be a part of just creating – Ripples and catalog and that's what you guys do here at Uplift. Mm-hmm. You guys sew so into these the community. You sew so into the these kids. You you stay with them, right? It's not like, hey, I just gave you a you know, the ticket into an Uplift class. No, this is about a long-term relationship. Right. This is about truly caring about these kids. I got to tell you, like what we do, feels like it's very similar, but we're just doing it with different people,
1: mm.
0: right? And that's why I love you guys and what you do because that that is what I sense is happening. Yeah. People are awakening to the realization. I think the pendulum is swinging back mm. that there is value in seeing the humanity in everyone around
2: us. That's right.
0: Even if we don't agree with them, mm-hmm. even if we don't necessarily like them. Yeah. Right? And this whole thing about judging people based on where they're from, what they look like, or, or some of their beliefs. Right, and we tend to do that in our world. Right, I say I support this candidate, you immediately put me in a box. Or I say I support this candidate, you immediately put me in a box. Or I support this stance on a certain social issue, mm-hmm. and guess what that does? That prevents us from having conversations. I, it is a goal of mine that in, at least every month I sit down with somebody that I know I have nothing in common with, hmm. from any of that that do not share any of my core. Beliefs and values, Hmm. and what I have found through that, I have made some amazing new friends. Because you can always find something that there's there's at least something that touches that you both care about. Yeah. Every time I have not been surprised yet, Um, but anyway, that's so that's what I do now. Through I work with leaders. I train teams. We've been hired by the Air Force. Mm. I can't get the Navy to hire me, <laughs> but the Air Force is stupid enough to hire a Navy guy. The yeah, Air Force is smart.
2: <laughs> See, the Air Force is smart. The Air Force is smart. Good man. No, thank you. That's very
0: good. Um, we've been able to work. Uh, we went on a mission trip in Rwanda. We saw this huge need with young men and women down there that are the future leaders. Not only, not only, I believe, of the country of Rwanda, mm. but they have a vision to change Africa through a model that they want to create in Rwanda through actually creating a standard of life opportunity in a middle class that does not exist other than maybe a few couple places in South
2: Africa. Can you say a little bit more about that model that you're you're talking about?
0: Yeah. I'm I'm doing some work down there with Bridge to Rwanda. I know some of your listeners are probably very familiar with them. Uh, They work with some of the top performing high school kids Hmm. in Rwanda. Now, If those kids with the Rwandan education applied to a U.S. university, they wouldn't get in. So they've created a gap year. It's uh, 16 months to teach them English, to be fluent in in speaking, writing, reading, the math skills and ACT, SAT, taking skills. And then they help them apply to U.S. universities. And uh, there is – it's been incredible. They've had now over, I think, 360 kids over the last 10 years that have had full-ride scholarships from TCU – Abilene Christian, Stanford, MIT, Harvard, Northwestern, you name it. And uh, these kids see that this opportunity, I mean, think about it. Think about the transition, though, that they just went through, living in maybe a dirt. You, you guys been to Africa? I've not been to Africa. Okay. So imagine living in a, a small home, cinder block home or mud home, dirt floor, and two years later, you find yourself at Harvard. And the transition. Mm-hmm. And think about the character of these young men and women that they choose to come. They could go get a job for $100,000 after a degree at any one of these places. Mm-hmm. And they're choosing, about a, most, a majority of them, to come back to Rwanda to get into business there. But now because of culture, because of the genocide, I got to tell you, there's what I saw there. Where the country is today recovering from the – I mean 800,000 people were killed the first 90 days. I think there's 1.1 million people. This is not a big place. And think about it, anybody our age was directly involved or affected. Anybody the age of your kids that you're working with, your high schoolers and college students, uh-huh. their parents were they're involved or were affected or killed, right? I mean, just think, right? And but like I gotta say the spirit of unity there, hmm. uh, the spirit of hope that they have as a country. They get to do you know the entire country gets together one day every month for volunteer day. Every village gets together mm. and whether it's to serve a widow in the community or to build part of a community center but the
2: entire country wow. does a service day every month. Can you imagine if we did that? Oh wow. Yeah, I was gonna ask if there's something we can learn in America from them, but sounds oh, like yeah, big not, time. Some practical things we could we could definitely uh emulate. Yeah. So they're trying to change their so they're so just
0: culturally, leadership is not something that as we know is leadership, you know, developing people, creating high performing teams, onboarding people, mm-hmm. you know, all these things that we are just kind of natural is not uh part of their uh business culture. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with this small group to see if we can you know, teach them the skills that they need because they're all in business from banking, agriculture, production, you know, all different areas, education, uh, to see if I can just uh, – I'm just donating my time with this group. Uh, traveling there and doing a lot through Zoom. I got to tell you, it's been incredibly rewarding. My son has joined me. He, you know my son, John? Yeah. He's there helping me do this. I've enlisted some other friends of mine that are coaches because we do a lot of executive coaches. I do coach training. But yeah, that's what I do. You know, I my, my message is to, you know, just equip and inspire others to accomplish what's been inspiring them. You know, to take advantage. Here's what I realized, maybe to kind of summarize, I've been monopolizing the conversation. But, you know, I was given the second chance, right? I was like, you know, I got my golden ticket. And what I realized is that this is not unique to me. John is not special. Hmm. That every single day before this accident was a second chance, but I never realized it.
1: Hmm.
0: And every day since has been also. And here's a great thing for that's anybody powerful. listening. Is right, man. There's a that's lot of stuff powerful. happening in your life, and you know what? If you missed your second chance this morning when you got up, here's a great news: is tomorrow's go. another second chance, <laughs> right? I and I would it. just until, I would just encourage you to go find a mentor, get involved in something that you're passionate about, like uplift. When you focus on other people versus focusing on yourself, that's what those guys did in San Diego.
2: Mm-hmm
0: man, you can change a life uh, generationally. Yeah. But when you sit there and when all the times where I've had my hardest moments was when everything was focused in, Mm. on feeling like a victim, on why did this happen to me? But now I've actually learned that some of that stuff, if I had not gone through it, I would have never accomplished some of the things I've been able to do to either help other people or in business, had I not gone through some of those times. Because think about that, the first thing God said to me, and In his presence was all things work together for good. And I got to tell you, though, that's not like an easy process, too, sometimes. But over time, especially in hindsight, if I actually just, for me, I had to hold on to that and say, there is a plan here, even though I can't see it. Eventually, even though this is horrible to go through, I am just going to choose to believe that it's actually going to serve a purpose. And I think, honestly, trying to keep that positive mindset for myself was what allowed me to get through two and a half years in in the hospital
2: and 23 surgeries. I mean, that was not enjoyable. <laughs> right? Yeah, wow. Well, you mentioned that uh, you're working with your son, and we talked some about legacy. You talked about the importance of generational. I just, you know, just a comment or two maybe about what's that like, I mean, working with your son in this endeavor.
0: Oh, my God. it's a Joe, it's a dream come true. Mm. And and uh, I got to tell you, as soon as John— Approached me and said, "Hey, I want to do what you're doing, mm-hmm. right?" Uh, I was like, "I got to tell you, for me, that was one of the biggest blessings ever." Mm. And then, he, and now, as he's working with me, guess what I've done? Like I've always done, I reached out to other people I know that are business owners who have their kids working for them. <laughs> I said, how did you do this? How did you grow your relationship and grow the business? Mm -hmm. And for me, that actually expanded my vision of my company. One of the things now we talk about as a team is that beyond influence, our company, we are building it so that it is going to be a place where every single member of our family would eventually want to work. Mm. I'm paying for my son's education at Creighton. So instead of him going and making money for some investment banker on Wall Street… I would love for him to take those skills and talents and make as much or more being able to work for my company as part of the family. Yeah. And if that's not his choice in this season, that's great. But I want him to also know that the door is always open and that as he watches from afar, it's appealing. Hmm. And so that has become kind of a new part of my expanded vision. When John joined, you know, reached out to the mentorship and like he comes over, uh, Four days a week. I, I get to work with my son four days a week. We're planning things. Mm-hmm. We're going on meetings mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. I get to mentor him. I get to disciple him. He's being mentored by some other amazing guys that I've made sure is kind of happening outside of just being with dad. And I got
2: to tell you, man, it it has been uh, so rewarding. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as you, you look to the, to the future, uh, you mentioned the book, um, you know, and, you know, the, your organization, your your company, uh, we know you have the Eternal Leadership Podcast, you know, in, in the future there. Um, is there something that you want to share with us about about that in terms of your overall vision as you move forward um, towards, the, you know, like I said, with the publication of this book, perhaps? Or like I said, maybe uh, something with the podcast that you have plans for around or around?
0: Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Um... I think, you know, our real vision is to – we call it Project 100 inside of the company. Mm-hmm. And it's we want to have a uh, a life-changing, positive impact on a million people in the next three years. Mm. And we do that because I'm like, okay, how do we do that, right? That's a big number. If we can truly change the way that – I think when people really understand the heart of leadership and they're leading on purpose and with a purpose, right – if I can help 100 people really understand that, they can go help 100, right? That's 10,000. If those 10,000 go help 100, now we're at a million. So you can see everything we do now is through that lens. Mm-hmm. I really want to be part of a movement, I believe, that's happening right now that's changing really the not only the definition of leadership mm-hmm. but how it's done because you and I have both studied leadership. I think one of the biggest things, it's it's a huge industry, 25 billion was spent on leadership just in America in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. And, and like, how's that going for us? <laughs> right? Does anybody think we have a leadership crisis? <laughs> <laughs> Amen, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Because everybody focuses on the why, the what, and the how. Mm-hmm. And the, while those are important, right, I could take your best teaching, Joe, and I know you have this amazing background in leadership, and I could take it and apply it diligently and not get a fraction of your results. Because I think the critical thing that's missing is the who. That's right who we are as a person, Mm -hmm. who do we know ourselves to be, and the confidence to step into that. And so I'm doing a lot more speaking, Mm -hmm. both, uh, as you can tell, you know, face important, but I, you know, just got back from speaking to a huge Silicon Valley company. So I speak, you know, and that's not not a topic that they want brought up. That's fine with me. I just want to be out there and, and just share people. We do a lot of work training teams. Uh, we're working with companies, helping them to learn actually how to coach. I think it's the mm. fastest way to create cultural transformation, develop people, keep your best people. Uh, so there's a lot that we're doing right now, a lot of exciting things that would be interesting to anybody to talk to. I'd always be happy to have a conversation, and and if we can't help you, I have a great network, and I, you know, I love connecting people, so <laughs> I'm I'm quick to connect people. Yeah. I don't think I'm the right person.
2: So, yeah. well, we've definitely benefited from those connections, and again, amazing story, uh, amazing life, amazing testimony, and we thank you so much for sharing that um, with us. Um, Incredible lessons that I'm taking from this. I mean, I got a page full of notes here, and I know our listeners are going to benefit greatly from that, and we can't thank you enough for all that you represent, and really all that you are, because it is the who. It's it's who you are um, that's really making a difference for us, so we thank you for sharing that with the world and with us today.
0: Yeah, thank you guys for what you're doing, your whole team. You guys are... You guys are changing the world. I love it. Changing this community here in Denver for a fact. Love yeah. you guys. You're awesome.
2: Yep. Same here. All right. Take <laughs> care now.
1: Thank you for listening to Leading on Purpose, a podcast by Colorado Uplift, where we enlighten, energize, and equip leaders to make a difference in their communities. We hope you're inspired by listening to John Ramstead and his story. If you'd like to learn more about John and what he's doing, go to eternalleadership.com, and that'll be in the show notes as well. And, you know, the challenge, I guess, for us as a society is to invest in people. Uplift invests in students in the Denver inner city, and then through our sister organization, Elevate USA, does that nationally. John invests in people in the corporate world. And I think we all have the opportunity to invest in people. Someone that we may encounter, a leader that has potential that needs to see more in themselves. So our challenge is general today, but specific to you. What can you do to invest in somebody to grow them, develop them, and inspire them to be a leader that they can take on and be in the world? Thanks.